At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 385th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who appreciates the history of flowers. We're talking with Chris McLaughlin about heirloom flowers in the garden. Chris is a Northern California writer and author who has had her hands in the soil for nearly 40 years. She's the author of seven books, including Growing Heirloom Flowers from our friends at Cool Springs Press, A Garden to Die For, that's spelled D-Y-E, and Vertical Vegetable Gardening. Chris's work can also be found in several magazines, including Urban Farm Magazine and the Heirloom Gardener Magazine. Online, she's written for a variety of gardening sites, including VegetableGardener.com, FineGardening.com, and About.com. Chris and her family live on a flower and fiber farm in Northern California, where they grow flowers, fruits, vegetables, and Gora goats. Welcome to the show today, Chris. Are you ready to rock? I am ready. Let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely. When I was really young, around 10 years old, I had noticed that little teeny weeny plants were popping up in my mom's, I wouldn't say garden bed, but the landscaping of the property. Uh-huh. And what I figured was, is those were little babies. So I dug them up and I put them in little bathroom Dixie cups and I loaded them up 
up in my brother's little red wagon. I was raised by entrepreneurs, so I saw a profit to be made. Nice. So I rode up and down the street, and I sold those for 10 cents each. Of course, later I would figure out those are called volunteers, and, you know, they were reproducing themselves. I was indeed selling little baby plants. So from then on, you know, I wasn't fully developed as a gardener, but I did see that this was something that could be really cool. For the rest of my childhood, it was really funny. My parents were not into the whole farming situation, anything like that. But they kept moving us to areas where we were right on the edge. So literally, no kidding, our backyard would back up to those properties that were actually farms or farmland. They might be growing strawberries, whatever. And I just sat there wishing they had moved just a few feet over into the farm area. So my whole life, I dreamed of it. I got here as fast as I could. And when I was 16, I went to work in a forest. So my mother was working in a florist wow. and I took a job there and really fell in love with the flowers and even the plants back then. I know this is all coming back now, but back then terrariums were huge. That was the thing is to have these little glass terrariums and they're making a comeback now. But I fell in love with just all things plants. From then on, I grew some things. Again, not a fully developed gardener, but always had things kind of growing. And then as I got older, I got into actually creating spacious gardens and things like that in suburban areas. And then I moved on. I just couldn't wait to get myself out to farmland from, you know, I'm not really sure what age I ended up. I'm going to say in my early 30s, I ended up actually getting on some land and actually being able to do a lot more gardening. So that's kind of where we're at today. We've moved around and done different things. And in the middle of that, one of my excursions was in the farmland area. I met an incredible lady who taught me about some plants she was growing. And it was it wasn't just flowers. It was the vegetables and the flowers. And they were beautiful. Some were unusual, like the blue fingerling potatoes, things like that. And she started to show me how these were heirlooms and open pollinated plants and all about them. And that was my first introduction to what these plants were and what they meant to all of us. So kind of how I started with all of that. Wow. You have a deep, long history in plants. How cool is that? Yeah, absolutely. It's built into me somehow. I don't know. We always laugh because I'm like, I'm an old McDonald's child born into an IBM family. My parents lived a very different life than I did. And I just pined to get my hands into the soil and on the land. So it's pretty funny. Yeah. My dad was a financial planner here in Phoenix when he was alive. And he for decades pined for me. I'm going to use that word as you did. He pined for me to take over his financial planning business. I kept going to him and looking at my hands and showing him my hands. I said, dad, these are hands of a farmer, not of a financial planner. It's just how it is sometimes. Exactly. The fate plays a hand in that. Yeah. So I completely completely understand. Yeah. It sounds like from a very early age, you were really plugged into the garden. I remember an interest back to when I was nine years old, but I didn't start gardening until I was about 14. Yeah, but isn't it funny how early that can really happen? We don't really associate it with that. You know, we always associate with, I'm an adult and I've decided to plant a garden. You know, you don't really associate the fact that even small children are drawn to it. Yeah. Some more than others, obviously. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, exactly. You know, in the case of you and I, but you know, it, it's funny because because even with my own children, all of them do enjoy plants and gardening and stuff. They all have a very deep appreciation for them that I think would not have been there right. had I not shown this to them and stuff. None of them at this point are farmers, 
per se, but every one of them loves to grow things. I'm thrilled with that because one of my children has children. And as they just pass this love for growing things, Mm -hmm. you know, down the way, that's what heirlooms actually is all about. Right. There's that. Well, cool. So let's talk about that. We're here today. I have in front of me growing heirloom flowers. Bring the vintage beauty of heritage blooms to your modern garden. This is your newest book. It was out in May of 2018. Tell us about it. How did it come to be? It's funny because I've been peddling this idea for a couple of years. A lot of people have been interested for a long time, but you know, when it comes to a publishing house agreeing to do a book, they really have to start to see a trend. So once I started seeing that, when you think about, you know, Italy's slow food movement, that really started getting people gardening, you know, growing their own foods or at the very least seeking out others that are growing it and purchasing it from them. Yeah. Then that paved the way for the slow flower movement. You know, most people didn't realize how these flowers were being shipped from overseas and had all kinds of chemicals sprayed on them, all that. So people started really getting into local flowers. And the neat thing is, is that they started paying more attention to the heirlooms. These are plants that, you know, go from garden to table beautifully, but to have to have them hold somewhere in a shipping place and travel, that's really not what they're built for. Right. So people just started renewing their interest in having their own and seeing these gorgeous old-fashioned blooms. And once again, you know, everybody's starting to really like that. So this publishing house said, yeah, this is it. This is the time. There was some other wonderful heirloom flower books printed. They've been out of print for years, but wonderful book that kind of faded out of favor and no one kept it going, except for I know that they did write some wonderful articles that have tried to, you know, bring those things back. So I was so thrilled when, you know, Cool Springs Press said, hey, we want to do it. And I was like, finally a home for my little book. Nice. So I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to kind of partially answer the question when I ask it, because I think you've already might have touched on it. And the question is, what makes heirloom flowers? And one of the things that you said that makes an heirloom flowers, I'm going to postulate here, is that they don't last very long. So you cut them and, you know, basically bring them in from the yard and put them on the table, display them pretty immediately. Is that part of heirloom? No, it's not. It's just that talking about the flower industry, I'm glad you brought that up. I wouldn't want to send that message. The idea is that most of these flowers that the florists are buying from the flower marts all across the country, they're getting shipped from overseas and stuff. And those flowers in particular, like roses, they're being produced, so hybridized, in order to hang on to their lifespan, just last a long time and being able to be hardy and shipped and stuff. So some of the old-fashioned flowers that we produce hold out just fine. But there are some that are more delicate and don't. And that would not be just for the heirlooms. For instance, poppies don't ship all that well right. from anywhere. It doesn't None of them ship well. So that's really what I'm just saying is that the ones that are just less hardy, and that could be you know any type. Right. We were just refreshed, a new feeling of people wanting to grow things themselves. So that could include these flowers that don't ship well. People were just happy to grow them here for themselves. Or also, like a lot of us as flower farmers, growing them for local florists that can use them now in their arrangement, which they weren't able to use a lot of the other. So it just depends on the flower species. Got it. Then what makes flowers heirlooms? Basically, strictly defined heirlooms, they would come from open pollinated plants. So those are plants that are being naturally pollinated by insects or birds or mammals or the wind. So that's open pollination. When that happens, they produce seeds, the seeds those flowers produce, will be future plants that look and perform like their parents. So that's what's called as breed true. A hybrid plant doesn't do that. A hybrid plant, we kind of did that on purpose. We put two different varieties together and we got 
got whatever we got as a hybrid. And then when you save those seeds, you just never really know what you're going to get because you get something that came from the past of any one of those parents. So open pollinated plants breed true. And the heirlooms are basically a subset of the open pollinated plants. So what those guys are, are the plants that have been handed down for various reasons for hundreds of years, could be thousands of years through the family. It could be for reasons of their fragrance. It could be just that they're hardy in the area or what have you. So they've been handed down from family member to family member. They often come with great stories, depending on the variety and or the species. And that's, you know, always fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you basically earn that heirloom title if they've been cultivated and handed down to the generations for 50 to 100 years or more. Mm -hmm. Purists, people who are just really just diehards on the topic, they're going to say they have to be at least 100 years old. Wow. That's just their definition. This is very loosely defined, as you can tell. Oh, right. There's no strict thing going on here. Others say 1951 is the marker because that's when seed companies began heavily marketing hybrid seed varieties. So some will say that. So you can see that definition, you know, kind of wavering. Kind of slides a little bit. Yeah. It does. And the other thing I want to add, because this can get super confusing, I even say in the book, don't worry about it. Don't get all control freaky. You know, it's very hard to be a purist. I'd never recommend that because it's very hard to keep that up. Yeah. So ancient hybrids, there are some ancient hybrids that are considered heirlooms. They're called heirlooms in their own right. So for example, old garden roses, they have beautiful array of varieties that were bred ages and ages ago. They're antiques. They're cherished. They're handed down through the generations. So most rose enthusiasts consider any cultivar that was bred before 1867, because that's when the first modern rose was introduced, to be an heirloom variety. So there's other species like Japanese anemones. Honorine Hobert was introduced in 1858. She is an heirloom. She is also a hybrid. <laughs> oh, interesting. You know, it's just so fair to call those things heirlooms. It really, really is. But if you were just to say strict you know, annuals and perennials in your garden, you're just going to go for an open pollinated variety that's over 50 or 100 years old been handed down and they will breed true. And that's kind of the definition of that. And you're an heirloom flower farmer. Is that not the case? No, <laughs> I know. See, here's where we're going to get mixed. I grow heirloom flowers and a lot of them are and can be grown commercially. Absolutely. Uh -huh. But in the spirit of actually being a flower farmer, I do have to grow hybrids because they're hardy. They last longer. Got it. They've been bred for that reason. So I do both. I definitely will grow heirlooms for that market, but I also grow hybrids for that market as well. It's not strict. Cool. So you're actually growing cut flowers and selling them. Yes, exactly. Right now we're only doing wholesale to local florists. We mm -hmm. haven't really branched out into retail or anything yet, but just wholesale flowers to the people who are designing with them. Excellent. I went back to college late in life. In 1999, I went back to college. And one of the things that I did to make my way through college was I grew food in my front and backyard. I also grew flowers. And so I was selling cut flowers and I just took them to the farmer's market once a week. Yeah. And it brings such joy to people. They really are so joyful and such a connection to our past. I mean, when you think about that, you could literally have a flower in your garden that is a direct descendant of what your great grandparents grew, like literally a direct descendant, not like, you know, oh, they also grew this. No, no. Literally the genetics in that flower could have, you know, right been, been the same, especially if it was handed down. It's so wonderful. I mean, it's just yeah. amazing. Usually, you know, heirlooms are very easy keepers in the garden. They really are. Uh -huh. You know, when you think about it, when they're as old as they are and they've been collected and handed down, and especially if they're in the same area, because then it's a land race. Land races are plants that have been grown in the same area over and over. Seeds are collected. They become extremely hardy in that area. So 
these plants that have been exposed to a bajillion climates and microclimates, pests, diseases, it makes them very adaptable. So it's nothing hard about them because they're called heirlooms. It's not like that. It's just, you know, a lot of biological diversity and a lot of great scent going off with these flowers. You know, well, if they are scented flowers, that hasn't bred out of them because of the hardiness. Mm-hmm. When hardiness is bred in, you get to lose the fragrance. They're a very fun thing to grow and a great thing to talk about when people are visiting. <laughs> so. Right. So let's talk about growing flowers on our farms. Why is it important for food farmers to grow flowers? The great thing, of course, when you're talking about some of the differences in these plants, and that isn't to say that hybrids don't have pollen and all that, because many of them do. Right. But some of them are commercially bred to not have very much or not have any at all because of the fact that once a pollinator pollinates that plant, Mm -hmm. it dies pretty quickly. It's trying to go back to seed, right? So having a lot of plants, these heirlooms or any other open pollinated plants, you know, on your farm, where you're growing vegetables or fruit or anything, they're going to call in those pollinators and they're going to be pollinating the bejesus out of everything. (laughs) We like that. Oh, big time. Yeah. Keeps the pollinators going. It keeps your food going. I mean, what is better than that? And the butterflies, come on, flying flowers, right? Right, exactly. Are there some edible heirloom flowers? Yeah. And you know, it's becoming so popular to eat flowers, to have them in our foods, our baked goods, or even our drinks. Big thing right now, having floral items in your cocktail. They're definitely becoming popular for food and drink. And there's a lot of heirlooms that are available for that. Nasturtium, sunflowers, roses, marigolds, calendula, hollyhocks, rose of Sharon, zinnia, I mean, lavender. All of those are edible? All of those are edible. Lilacs, peonies are all edible. And of course, now, so here's where I say the no excuse rules for edible flowers. This is any edible plant you touch, right? Yeah. Only eat the flowers that you can 100% identify as an edible plant. If you just kind of think, well, that kind of looks like mint, no. Don't eat it. 100%, right? Eat only the parts of the plant or the flower that are known to be safe for human consumption. So if they're saying the petals on something is something that's edible, but you don't know if the leaves are, please do not eat that. Right. Look at rhubarb, right? Oh, hello. You do not want to be eating the leaves on rhubarb. Never eat flowers, of course, that have been sprayed with herbicides, pesticides, whatever sides. Right. Maybe in your own garden, you're thinking, well, I don't do that. But, you know, you may get them from someone else's garden or somewhere else where they were spraying and you don't really want to be eating that. I just want to say that because even though those plants are edible, there could be reasons you would not want to eat them. Yeah, exactly. And a big reason is, are you 100% sure that's what you think it is? That's the biggest thing for me. You just have to be 100% certain that's what it is. I mean, it's not to scare anybody because many times you are going to be able to say, that's a marigold. It's like, okay, I mean, you got it. Right. If you don't know, (laughs) just research just a little bit and you'll be safe. Some of them make wonderful flavors. Some of them are just gorgeous garnishes like, oh, borage. Oh my goodness, borage. Oh, yes. Toss in your salad or miracles. It's gorgeous. You know, in your ice cubes, you know, lavender in your baked goods. Oh, this is wonderful stuff. You're making me smile over here. Yeah. That's another great reason to plant. You know, an heirloom garden, you've got the whole heirloom thing going. You've got the fact you can use them in your food and drinks, as well as arrangements and things like that. So it's, they're very, very useful. You know, another reason to grow them, not just leave them in the yard. We don't do that. <laughs> well, we really don't do that. We cut them and sell them. But honestly, they can be used in so many different ways. And I'm noticing in your book, Growing Heirloom Flowers, I just went to the content page. You have some beautiful flowers on a black background here. And you have it broken down into four chapters, four main chapters. Bold Blooms for the Cutting Garden, Flowers for Fragrance, The Handcrafter's Heirlooms, and Cottage Classics. So let's talk about Handcrafter's Heirlooms.
heirlooms. What are those? Yeah, that's really fun. These are heirloom plants that people can use, you know, not just for, you know, obviously the table or food, but also, you know, in crafting. So we do all kinds of things with these flowers that are so much fun. And a lot of these things are coming back that were very old fashioned. Mm -hmm. Flower crowns is one of them. I can't get enough of making flower crowns. I put them on my goats. You know, honestly, flower crowns are so wonderful and you can use so many different things for that. A lot of these things sound really old fashioned, but they really are coming back. When it comes to maybe doing home decor, doing the flower pounding, doing like the goodness where the dried flowers, and actually I have a whole thing in here on the dried flowers that you can frame and hang as pictures. Oh yeah. So a whole press flower thing. You can make natural flower dyes, which is what my other book was about, was doing dyes from these plants. Tussie mussies. We're trying to bring those back. Little tiny hand bouquets, they call them nosegays or whatever, they're tussie mussies. They were very old fashioned and used for some different ways before, but in this case, how much fun is it, honestly? You take your wife, you know, to dinner for Valentine's Day, or you take your mom for Mother's Day or whatever. How sweet to have a little tiny bouquet that she can walk around with the rest of the day. I mean, really? I mean, if you're a very clever husband, you could tuck in every flower in that little bouquet. Right. I was just hinting to everybody. I've sent hint, hint. Yeah, right? Totally. Come on. You are so going to make somebody happy if you put these little flowers in there that was actually in their original bridal bouquet. Just a tiny miniature of that. Oh, hello. She's going to be like, oh, this is adorable. And you're like, yeah, did you notice the flowers? And then see, so you got the upper hand because she's not going to really get it probably. Yeah, she might not even remember. You go, yeah, those are all in your bridal bouquet, honey. I'm sorry, but you have the upper hand at that point. No kidding. It's really great. Gosh, you could do body scrubs, bath salts and lotions totally in right now. Mm-hmm. Coming up with your homemade beauty items and heirloom flowers are perfect for that floral paper handmade floral paper candles artisan soap so one thing i want to talk about as far as the flowers go the everlasting flowers that after they bloom and you've cut them and showed them off you actually let them dry and they can be used to make wreaths or anything you can think of are corn flowers like that corn flowers can be dried absolutely what i've noticed is that the stems aren't going to dry real well but we like to save just the flower petals and use those and things. But everlastings that kind of really hold that head really well yeah. are like status, straw flowers. Oh, you have to grow straw flowers. Totally grow them. Uh-huh. I'm telling you, it is so funny. When they start to bloom and you see that these guys actually bloom dry. I don't even know how to explain that to you. Wow. I smile every single time one opens up. It's like little magic, guys. They're so cool. <laughs> Globe amaranth. They are. It's so crazy, but I smile every single time. It's like I don't believe it every single time. Yeah. Globe amaranth is another one that does it. Other flowers dry well too. Yeah. Yeah. Hydrangeas dry well. It's not an, an everlasting in that sense, you know, as the globe amaranth, the straw flowers, but hydrangeas dry really well. And there's so many things you can actually make from these things, which of course you can translate into gifts. Mm-hmm. Gifts from your garden. I mean, it's crazy. People are going to be like blown away. <laughs> <laughs> you grew this. You made this for me. It's wonderful. It's great stuff. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for all of that. Sure. Absolutely. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. You know, I'm going to answer this differently maybe because I can't really think of a specific time that I failed and it taught me something truly memorable because I fail all the time. I mean, if you're not 
failing, you're probably not growing anything. Right. Yeah. And I always do look at it like, I don't know who said this. I wish I knew who said this. Forgive me, whoever actually said this. I always think of it as I either win or succeed and it works or I learn. I really try not to think of it as a failure. I mean, it bums me out if I see something completely annihilated. I go, ah, rookie move. I messed that up. That's a bummer. I don't look at it as a failure. I go, okay, well, I know I can't do that that way again. But what I find is that I make myself fail. I set myself up for failure. It's a flaw in my personality. This really goes with everything in my life and I have to battle against it is that many times I'm rating for the right moment. It's got to be like, well, this soil isn't built up right yet. Or, oh, I missed that window for planting those seeds. Can't do it this year. And I actually hold myself back and I kind of just fail by osmosis because I'm just so worried it's the wrong time. Someone else might even tell me, oh no, it's the wrong time to do that. I really just want to try it. Mm-hmm. I push myself through that many times and just say, no, I'm just going to do it. Right. I know this might not be the greatest soil right now. I know that, but I'm just going to do it. You know, I'm not going to hold it against myself if maybe there wasn't enough nutrients for that particular plant. I go, oh yeah, next time I've got to make sure I get that in there. But I hold myself back and I think that's really where I fail. That's a failure in general. I have to stop doing that. Everything can't be perfect. Everything can't be right. And everything can switch on a dime anyway. I mean, your weather could change immediately right when you thought it was the great timing and ruin something. So you're not really all in control anyway. I think that would be probably the best answer for that question. Excellent. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, on a personal level, passing on my love for animals and, you know, all living things, animals and plants to my kids, I think has been such a success because I know that they'll pass that on. The other thing that I realized that was, again, not a single success, but as success in general, when I realized, now I know a lot of people are probably going to be like, you know, messaging you going, oh, what is she talking about? But honestly, unless you're farming on big land, which then it's a whole different ball of wax, but I'm really talking about backyard gardeners, people with their private gardens. I don't till. Once I learned not to till that soil, my whole world opened up to me. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Once I figured that out, I'm telling you, everything got better. Yep. I build up my soil. I throw as much compost at that bad boy, goat manure and rabbit manure. Oh my goodness, rabbit manure so fabulous. But I just build up. And sometimes, you know, people think, of this, oh, I don't want to have to go out and buy this stuff. Buy what? Oh no. I literally have rounded up things and made like literally just kept going with a mound. Uh-huh. And then we have trees on our property that have fallen or branches or whatever. I've literally lined my beds, just hooked those branches together and made beds. You don't have to go out and make these big, beautiful garden beds you see on Pinterest. You don't have to do that. Just build up that soil. And the more you add to that soil, guess what? The stuff you were going to turn underneath, it becomes great soil. You call in all the earthworms and everything. Yeah. So it just goes even deeper. But boy, just stop pilling everybody. Quit it. Yeah. Don't mess with that. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no point, you know? My friend and business partner, Kari Spencer, says that when you go in with a tiller and till, it would be like going down a street with a monster tiller and tilling up. Oh, yeah. You know, the houses on the street, that's the damage that it makes. And not only does it mess with the aggregates of the soil and really damage the soil, the other thing is, so this is more basic for me. For one, all of those dormant weed seeds that will never grow again because they're a couple inches below that soil, they can't see the sun or anything, you have just brought them to the surface. And I'm telling you, if you don't do something with that area, you know, plant it and then, of course, cover your bare soil or whatever, you're going to have more weeds there than you have ever seen. Right. 
I mean, it's like crazy. You just brought them to the service. So that's one. And for two, here's like the laziest thing you're ever going to hear. Why? <laughs> right. Here's the thing. You're just breaking your back. There's just no reason for it. Like literally, if you just keep building up and just keep adding to that soil, the soil that you had that maybe was not good, didn't look nutritious, you know, it's just not really full of, you know, organic matter and stuff. That will happen. The worms and, the, and macrobes, if you will, yep. they will all come to that area and they they will till for you. They will make that better soil for you. So honestly, I'm lazy. I just want to get to planting. I don't want to, you know, to deal with all this other stuff. There's just no point in that. Right. But what I have done on occasion, I will tell you this, when I don't have a lot to work with and I really want to plant, so I have like a shrub going in or something, I will dig a, just a big hole and I will add some great compost and great soil in that hole and just plant right in there. So the hole is filled with really great soil, but maybe the land beyond that is still kind of crummy. And then I just keep adding the Compost to that. Yep. I don't let it stop me. But boy, once I stopped tilling, that really gave me a leg up on gardening. So I just wanted to say that. In so many ways, it gives us a leg up. I know. So what drives you? My whole goal has always been to show people the different ways that plants contribute to our lives, from medicinal to food to beauty and to joy. And also, I feel like and always have felt like this, that we go through a lot of time and, you know, especially right now, just in the whole world or, you know, how it's been for quite a while, really. Uh-huh. And I'm not even sure this really has to do with politics, to be honest with you. Not so much that. I'm talking about the way we have gotten away from learning some of the basic things in our world that make it to where we know we can do something, right? I mean, many of us cannot go out. You know what I'm saying? We can't do a lot of the basic things. Many of us can't cook. Okay, so really basic stuff. So I always feel like when you feel, when you're at a low point in your life, and maybe you're switching jobs, you know, things are happening in your life, when you can go out and quite literally grow things for food, for beauty, for sale, to save for seed for the following year, whatever, you know, you literally can grow food and flowers for your table. You can literally feed your family. Not I go find a job and make money and then go to Safeway. I'm talking about you can literally plant something and feed your family emotionally and physically and all that. That is so empowering if you just try that. You have to provide all your own food. Yeah. Nobody really does that anymore, but just provide something for that table. You are so empowered. And what I think that does is it lets you know that you're empowered across the board. You can do this for yourself. Yeah, you can. We're just gotten away from doing it for ourselves. Yeah. We don't realize the stuff we can go do ourselves. We don't have to hire for. So I just think it's empowering. So I just really love to empower people and let them know they can do these things for themselves. It doesn't have to be all the way. You know, I don't grow all my own food. I totally don't. But I know I can, you know, and I know yep. that I can grow my flowers and I can save seeds and I can sell my produce and my flowers and that sort of thing. It's just a super empowering thing. So that really drives me to show people how cool plants are, what they can do for us. Nice. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? You know what? I'm going to say Lasagna Gardening by Patricia Lanza. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've been practicing this forever and ever. And I didn't even know that book was out there. When I found it, I was like, yes, power to the people. <laughs> I love to create layers like that. I sort of called it other things or whatever. And they call it sheet composting and all that. Mm -hmm. But laying those layers all out and you can plant right in it right then and go forward. You've got a garden bed that has all kinds of nutritional value and stuff like that. And again, you're building up. So I think that's a 
a fabulous book for anybody yeah. to start with. That's a great book. It really is. It's an extraordinary book. Yeah, I love that. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? It might sound so silly, but this is something I think people don't get. I really think this. And I discovered it. And I thought to myself, wow, if people knew this, like, honestly, they would realize like this whole garden writing thing and this whole garden guru thing and people going around talking about it. With all these gardening books out, I guess it would go with anything. But it's interesting. It gives you the impression that gardening is kind of hard, mm -hmm. that it's kind of hard to keep plants alive. And one thing I think I noticed about plants, because there's so many times I kind of laugh, like people are like, oh, your garden looks so beautiful and stuff. And I laugh and I think to myself, do they realize I did not do the heavy lifting here? Like, honestly, plants want to grow. They're programmed to survive. This is why weeds are stuck all over our shoes and all over our clothes. These are plants at their finest going, I will live. I will be brought to different areas and I'll survive. And plants want to grow. So short of taking like, say, a fuchsia that likes mostly shade and sticking it in the blazing sun, well, of course, you're going to fry it. Right. But if you just basically swear, if you just basically plant things kind of where they want to be, they grow. It's kind of like a little joke that people are like, oh, get and there is a skill, of course, to planting certain heights of plants behind mm -hmm. each other and things like that. Designing. There's a, of course, there's a skill to designing. But I'm just saying, really, if you just put plants basically in an area they like and give them some water, they grow. They grow. Isn't that epic? They want to grow. And you go, my God, little plant, despite me ignoring you, you are doing a killer job growing. Uh -huh. I just want to encourage people that these guys from the get-go are on your side because you want them to grow and they also want to grow. They're not trying to not grow and you have to coax them. That's really not true. Yeah. So, you know, other than my, you know, other than those darn orchids, they drive me crazy. Orchids. I think that's a different story. Yeah, yeah, different story. But anyway, I just, that's my tip to people is just to remember that they are really want to get out of the package and into the ground and they really want to grow and they try very hard and you see these lanky plants that okay they're not looking like this full beautiful plant that maybe you saw in a book but you notice it's growing and it's reaching for that light and it's staying alive yeah. and then you realize oh he needs a little more light next time I'm going to plant them over more mm -hmm. so they can get that but they're still trying to reach that light and they will still perform because they really want to amen to that I know it's a great interview when I got a smile on my face that's hurting and I spent my whole interview with you nodding my head yes oh good so thank you so much for joining us on the show today Chris. Oh, thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Oh my gosh, yes. It's been a delight. So how can our listeners find you? You know, I just am launching a brand new website. There's hardly any articles on it, just a baby website. Uh -huh. But I've written for so many places before, getting my own website again. And that is flowersinc.com. And it's flowers, I-N-K. Perfect. And you can find me there. You know, you can find me on Facebook pretty easily. I think I'm under a suburban farmer on Facebook, but I think Chris McLaughlin pops me up there. But you can always have me down there too. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash flowers inc with a K on the end. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and so many more places. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.